Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of Better Off. The Blind Side, The Big Short, The Undoing Project, and now the USDA. Michael Lewis joins us. If you politicize the Fed in an extreme way and debase the currency, which would be one way out of the federal debt, right, it would be catastrophic. But I don't see that as a real threat right now. The behavior seems much more moderate and considered in that part of the government. There are other parts of the government where I'm terrified. Welcome to Better Off. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, for the second time this year, we've got a return guest. It doesn't happen that often because why really do it unless there's something different? Well, we had Michael Lewis on the program earlier in the year. He was talking about his book, The Undoing Project. That was a great book, actually. It told the story of Israeli psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And it really was kind of like, think of them as the fathers of behavioral finance, behavioral economics. So now The Undoing Project is out in paperback and also a nice chance for us to get Michael Lewis to weigh in on the recent Nobel Prize in economics being awarded to none other than Richard Thaler, a behavioral economist whose work was based on the work of who? Yep, Kahneman and Tversky. So we talked quickly about that in this interview, but we're really having Michael back on the show to discuss his new article in Vanity Fair called Made in the USDA. Now, it's so wild because there's so many changes going on in this administration. Lewis is looking at the Department of Agriculture. This is not just an agency that deals with farmers. I know that's what you're thinking. The vast majority of its budget 110 billion of 164 billion goes to feed impoverished Americans. That's mostly school children, pregnant women, veterans, and retirees. So Lewis's article, and it's a great one, focuses on what is happening at the USDA under the Trump administration. So here's my interview with Michael Lewis. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Michael Lewis, welcome back to Better Off. How are you? I'm doing good. It's uh, a little early for me, but... It's, are you still on West Coast uh, yeah, time? Yeah, this always happens on the book tours. Uh, it, 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 I'm essentially going on the air at four in the morning, which uh, is an odd sensation. You know, that is my life, so yeah. welcome to it. Right. It's not pretty. Yeah. Uh, although I do go to bed at eight o'clock at night, so that would be five for you. Yeah. Um, the Undoing Project out in paperback, just in time for Richard Fowler's big prize. So how did you uh, how did you experience that as somebody who's been um, researching and wrote a book about the beginning parts of behavioral finance and economics? So, oh, I don't know, two weeks ago, right after the prize was announced, I was at a public event and a woman came up to me kind of dewy-eyed and said, congratulations on winning the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and I said... I, I, I didn't win the Nobel Prize. And she said, yes, you did. You just won it for economics, right? So to the extent I can I can uh, be mistaken for Richard Thaler because I've written about him and now I'm thought to have won the Nobel Prize, I'm going to try to do it. I think it's the way to go. It's I, my Nobel Prize. It's it, not it, his. And you know what? You should get a Nobel Prize. Why not? Well, I mean, why not? Because you actually break, you do something that Thaler as well as Kahneman Tversky did, which is you take things that are complicated, you boil it down to a way that we can understand it. So in many ways, why not give it to you? So you just send that note to Stockholm and get the process rolling? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you were going to... I heard a funny interview with, with Thaler where he, they said, what are you going to do with the money? 
And he goes, something completely irrational, I'm sure. So he's, uh, it's delightful that he got it. There was a great question because they gave the prize to Kahneman years ago without giving it to, to Thaler. Um, that maybe they were going to rebuff Thaler for whatever reason. But nope, he's got it. And the other interesting take on the prize is sometimes there's lots of squabbling within the economics profession about who got the prize. Mm. And there maybe, I'm sure there's some stuff that hasn't gone public. But just generally, I've been surprised by how many mainstream economists have said, good, that this was a good thing, that actually the behavioral economics is important. And it's nice that it be acknowledged this way. Okay, so I wrote about it um, in my Tribune column, and I got this email that I had to share with you because it made me laugh out loud. Dear Ms. Schlesinger, the Hartford Current printed your pay-in to Richard Thaler for his prize-winning economic work. I am baffled. Mr. Thaler proved, air quotes, that people are irrational, even bright people, when it comes to economic decisions. Are you serious? You know, I, it's funny that... It is true that if you just put it that way, that people are crazy or people are irrational, everybody says, what's surprising about that? You have to know first that the whole edifice of economic thought is based on the assumption that people are, are rational and that actually it was a useful assumption for, for, for lots of things. But secondly, it's not just that people are irrational, it's how they're irrational. That's what they're exploring. They're exploring what mistakes do people make, how do people make decisions, Generate they're they're generating a, a really insight into human nature about the nature of the irrationality. And you know what I love about Thaler's research is the application of it to real life. So, for example, auto enrollment into a four hundred one k. Even though he thinks the the level is too low, right? We'd love for everyone to be automatically enrolled into your retirement account and have ten percent go in there unless you opt out. So, social scientists up to the moment that Thaler and Cass Sunstein, his partner in crime, arrive on the scene, would basically say it doesn't matter what the form looks like when you present an employee with his pension options. But it's not true that if you present them with a decision where they have to opt in to some sort of savings plan, as opposed to opt out of the pro plan, um, you're much less likely to get them to save. That people, there's, a, there's inertia built in. And this, this is, a, I mean, I, I think a special case of work that was done by Kahneman and Tversky uh, on framing. The whole idea that people don't decide between things, they decide between descriptions of things. And if you describe it one way, uh, they'll do one thing, and you describe exactly the same thing another way, and they'll do another thing. I like the idea of this. Okay, you can sign up for an auto escalation clause, or you can sign up for the save for the future clause. Which one works better? Yeah. In each scenario, your contribution to your retirement plan will go up by 1% a year. Right. Auto escalation sounds like a dangerous thing in Bloomingdale's for me, so I don't want to go there. But save for the future sounds good. Yeah. So we got to come up with better names. So everyone... Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, which is phenomenal, and you heard him here talk about it. We'll link to the episode where he was on and talked so much about Kahneman and Tversky and their very special relationship. It's out in paperback. You know what? If you bought the hardcover for yourself, but you want to give the book to a lot of other friends, try 10 <laughs> copies of the book and send it to all your friends. You know, it was funny. I went back and listened to the podcast, and I said to you, 
in that podcast, which you don't remember. But what I asked you at the end was, you know, what are you what are you writing about? or What are you thinking about writing about? And you said, I really feel like this is the moment where I want to start writing about the political situation. What's going on? Did I say that? You did. And so now we have a new article that you have just penned for Vanity Fair. And it is about the USDA. First of all, how did you decide to write about what seemingly seem, seems like sort of like a boring part of the government? Yeah, that's partly why I chose it. But what, what happened was this. Um, I noticed in the newspaper accounts during, of the transition uh, between the time of the election and the time of the inauguration uh, that, that the transition had gone not well. The Trump administration in lots of departments of government had basically not shown up to be briefed by the Obama administration. And the Obama administration had put, I mean, a gazillion man hours into preparing for whoever was going to be president. Briefing books everywhere, you know, in every department, dozens of people deputed to explain how the government worked to whoever came in to run it. And the Trump administration places had just simply not shown up. And so I started actually with the Department of Energy because I thought, I don't know what it does. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, and it turns out this is the Department of Nuclear Weapons. I published that piece a couple of months ago. And then in the course of doing that, I found that of all the departments, it was highly egregious at the Department of Agriculture. People had told me that actually nobody showed up at all. It turned out to be not true. One person showed up kind of months, a month after uh, the election. They also, Trump had been so late in getting the secretary of agriculture in place. He was the last person appointed. And I thought, well, I wonder what that means. Like, you know, what does it mean that the people coming into the government are either not there, the jobs haven't been filled, or they've been brought in after they had a chance to really learn about from the people who were going out, how the place works. Um, Like, what are the costs? What are the risks? What are the risks? And it was interesting that in the article you say that USDA is not one of these, like, power turf agencies. It seems like people are really nice there or have been, very open, even when they— It's not ideological. Uh, Yeah. And it's not—if you think one of the reasons it's not ideological is that in it are big farm interests that are supported by agricultural state senators, many of whom were Republicans. So there there are Republican senators who watch like hawks over parts of this department. And there's always been a sense, there's a bipartisan consensus kind of on the mission of the department. It's not a place where lots of ideological battles get fought, but there, it is a place where lots of important, complicated stuff gets done that I didn't realize got done. And if you got people in charge or not, no one there or people in charge who have no idea what's going on, you put the institution at risk. And so, that, the question is, what does that mean? So let's talk a little bit about how vast uh, the agency is and what comes underneath it. Because I think a lot of people do think like, oh, USDA, that's, uh, I guess they put a stamp on my meat and they help the farmers and they that's, must, that be it. That would be it, right? So you know that they pay people not to grow crops kind of thing. And that they, and you might see their seal on the side of a milk carton. Uh, or their meat. They are in charge of food safety for all meat products. So, so that's kind of important. So it's important. So if you're if you're eating a cheese pizza, it's the uh, Food and Drug Administration that, that makes sure that you don't get killed by it. If you're eating a pepperoni pizza, the USDA moves on because it's got meat on it. Okay. Uh, we kill in this country 9 billion birds a year. 9 billion. Think about that number. They're in charge with inspecting each and every one of those birds. But and even that, the ones that, like, by mistake, that get sucked into a jet engine yeah, at LaGuardia. Well, so that, they're in charge of that, too. They're in charge of, there's a division of the USDA that polices all 
animal-human conflicts. Everywhere humans and animals are coming into conflict, the USDA is there in one way or the other. And one of the places they come into conflict is at airports. When There are people in the USDA who are charged with like going and shooting geese outside of LaGuardia Airport <laughs> so they don't get sucked into jail. They don't actually shoot them first. They try to scare them off, and then they shoot them. Okay. Uh, but if a circus is charged with, with uh, abusing its elephants, the USDA is there. I was also amazed, especially in light of the wildfires that we saw in Northern California, that that comes under the purview of the USDA. They run uh, the National Forest Service. So there's there are 193 million acres of national forest. They're basically responsible for fighting these fires that you... And one of the things Tom Vilsack told me, who was the Secretary of Agriculture for eight years under Obama, was when he came in, the first thing the guy who was leaving said, said to him was, you have the largest fleet of fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters outside of the military. And he said, what? You know, what am I going to do with that? Like invade Mexico? And, and that's, <laughs> that's part of what they do is go with those planes are fighting fires. So they have the Forest Service employs, I don't know, 45,000 people. There are 100,000 people employed by this in this department. It spends $160 billion a year. And the vast majority, like more than 90% of it, is not on farming. It's on other stuff. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Michael Lewis in just a second. But here is a big question. Are you getting as much as you can from your investments? It might be something that bugs you constantly. Or maybe it's been a while since you thought about it. Either way, it can be difficult to figure out. Enter Betterment the largest independent online financial advisor. They now offer a free investment review, which helps you assess your investment accounts, tax strategies, fees, and risk exposure. See what you're doing well and how you can improve and get a better picture of what you can expect from Betterment. No sign-up required. Visit Betterment.com slash BetterOff to start your free five-minute investment review today. That's Betterment.com slash BetterOff. And now back to our interview with Michael Lewis. So let's talk about some of the other stuff, including the food stamps program. I went in with a very specific question. And my question was, it's the same spirit in which I went into the Department of Energy. Okay, I'm going to get these briefings that the Trump people didn't bother to get. But I'm going to get them with a view to figuring out where we're vulnerable to mismanagement and incompetence and ignorance. Uh, like, what are the real risks here? So the, f- the farm programs are not where the real risks are because they've got these Republican senators watching them like hawks. But they're, they're the other parts that have less support where there aren't powerful interests uh, supporting where the society has decided to do something and it doesn't get done if there aren't public servants there who care about the mission. So, for example... $110 billion of the $160 billion goes to feeding people. Either food, what used to be called the food stamps program, now called the SNAP program, 80-plus percent of that of, uh, of the 70-something billion dollars of that goes to feeding poor elderly people and poor children. Also in, in the Department of Agriculture, all the school meal programs. And they're making decisions about what school nutrition should look like. There's a fellow who's in this piece named Kevin Kincannon. Came out of came out of retirement to administer all these food programs uh, because he really knew how they work because he'd done it at the state level. And what happens is the federal government kicks the money down to the state, and depending on where you live in this country, you have different access 
practical access to help. Right, because uh, some states it's like you got to fill out reams of some paperwork. States, some states make it extremely difficult, more difficult than others, for people who are hungry uh, to get fed. Partly for ideological reasons and partly because of reasons of competence. But this Kevin Kincannon had spent his career at in Maine and in Iowa and in Oregon getting people fed, figuring out how to use the federal money in an efficient way to get the programs to the people who needed them, and had devoted his entire career to this. And the, the disconnect between his own personal economic life, very modest middle-class life, person devoted to public service, and who was never seemingly even tempted by the vast sums of money he could have made if he'd gone and become a lobbyist or something. During the Obama administration, he hands out the better part of a trillion dollars in hunger aid and makes it more efficient, makes it easier for people to get get to it. No one knows his name. No one even knows he's doing it. And the thing that's interesting about it, and I'd like to spend a little bit of time on this program because there uh, there has been a shaming quality to the way that we treat the poor in this country. And that was one of the things that was so interesting about him that he wanted to kind of try to remove that shame factor. So, you know, we don't want to have some special stamps. We actually want to replace this with something that looks sort of like a credit card. Correct. He was up against, for example, an Arizona state official who wanted to make uh, food stamps or the credit card prison orange. They wanted to increase the shame factor. And no, his attitude was, and the attitude of the program was, if you're hungry, we feed you. You know, that's how it works. And, and there are work requirements for able-bodied adults who go on these programs. And, and it's not like you can just freeload. And there is a bit of fraud in the programs, but not that much. Yeah, you say 5%. That seems like nothing. It's, it's like a, probably a, an less, odd lot. Probably less than that. And however, what he says, and this is where the Trump administration enters, he says, if the programs are mismanaged, and there is more fraud, or the fraud is more sensational and can be blown up on Fox News as, oh, look, all these freeloaders are getting you know, free meals from, on the taxpayer's dime. Political support for them can unravel very quickly. And the casualties when that happens are the weak, the poor, the children, elderly. You've got to be vigilant in how you run these things. And the fact that nobody, that this guy had done it for eight, he'd done it his whole career. When he leaves, he's 78 years old. He's the world's authority on how to use federal dollars to alleviate hunger, that no one even bothers to spend five minutes with him to talk about how you run this thing. To me, it's breathtaking. It really is. In no no company would this happen. Uh, You say the average benefit is a dollar and 40 cents a meal. Yeah. This is what we are trying to begrudge. Yes. Right. And you say the problem with the program is not that people are cheating it. The problem with the program is that people who should be on it are not. Right. They, Why are they, they not? They're not because the state, some states make it complicated and difficult for them to get on or they don't know about it or they're ashamed of it. They, 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 their dignity prevents them from going and getting the help they need. The questions I had for people, for, they were, I talked to several people, but Kevin Kincannon is, what do you worry about? Like, now you know how it works. Someone sticks a wrench in it. How are they going to stick a wrench in it? And one one way they stick a wrench is they let fraud get a little out of hand and publicized. That's that would be one way. Another way, you let big food companies start to dictate what child nutrition should look like in the schools. You you let you let them put you know full fat uh, flavored milk back on the menu. So they're drinking strawberry full fat milk. This is the direction it appears to be heading. It's hard to know because Kevin Kincannon's job has not been filled. There's no one in charge of that little box in the USDA right now. Food stamps, 
school meals, science, science inside of the USDA. Talk a little bit about that and how that's at risk. Um, so this is interesting to me because I knew nothing about it. I mean, I came in, I, if you'd asked me what the USDA did, I would have said, I don't know, they pay farmers money not to grow things. That was kind of it. Yep. Uh, there is a budget of about $3 billion a year of grants to researchers, land-grant colleges, uh, for ag research. And a lot of this research, one way or another, has to do with how we respond to climate change, how you graze sheep if you got to graze them at higher altitudes, how, how you grow in a different climate. Uh, where you grow, what you grow. And the research has a history of being extremely important. If you go back, the Department of Agriculture was actually founded as a science department. Lincoln founded it in 1862, created it, and he created it for the dissemination of the -the state-of-the-art agricultural practices across all farmers. And the, the effects of this on our society are breathtaking. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like in that time, one farmer might have fed three or four people, and now each farmer in America is feeding 155 people. And what that means is that many, many, many fewer people have to be farmers and freeze them up to do other things. In some ways, the basis of the American economic miracle are efficiencies that have happened in farming. And a lot of those efficiencies go back to scientific research that was done through the Department of Agriculture. Also, I did not know, Virginia Tech, like most every college in the United States with Tech or A&M after its name, was actually established as a result of this in the 19th century. I, did, I had no, no same, idea. The same uh, political impulse and the same Congress that created the Department of Agriculture created the land-grant universities. And it, they granted them land to do work, agriculture and engineering work, to teach agriculture and engineering. So why science? Why am I looking at science? Well... Kathy Wotecki, who ran the science end of things under the Obama administration, is a 70-year-old woman whose entire career is about the acquisition of scientific knowledge in agriculture. She herself is an agricultural scientist. For her PhD thesis back when she was a, you know, a, a young woman, she, she works out why Mexican-American children in Texas are becoming sick in hospitals. And what she discovers is they're lactose intolerant. And they're giving them milk. She, I mean, so she's done. She's done. Has a career of figuring out important truths about food in the human body. Now, her replacement has been nominated by Trump, and her replacement is a man named Sam Clovis. Sam Clovis was a right-wing Iowa talk show radio host, kind of Rush Limbaugh of Northern Iowa, who has absolutely no science background. It's breathtaking. I can understand why you put your a political friend somewhere in the government, but why put him in a place where you actually have to know something? Yeah. And so the idea, the, the smell that comes out of that is science is going to be politicized. Added to that, Sam Clovis is a climate change denier. So if all the science is about how we cope with the changing climate and the guy in charge of it doesn't think the climate's changing, there's already a problem. So. The risk of this, the thing is, what's the risk here? The risk is nobody's going to feel this right now. Right. What, you know, what happens in labs around the United States right now is going to affect us 30 years, 40 years, 50 years out. Our, our children and grandchildren will feel the results of this ineptitude. Uh, so you can get away with it in a funny way if people aren't paying attention. This is what I find over and over in the government. Things people aren't paying attention to are what's going to kill us in 50 years. Okay. So you've done energy. You've done agriculture. What's up next? I don't want to tell you. Come on. No, I, I, a hint? I'm not going to even give you a hint. All right. I'm going to do three more. Oh, awesome. And they are all with a particular purpose, all with a, to get at a different angle of the story. 
Okay, I'm going to tell you what I want. I hope you do eventually. Give, I'm all my ears. favorite. My favorite story is how Trump is going to remake the Federal Reserve. Ooh, I think that that's like a fascinating thing. He's, uh, you know, he's named a new Fed chair. Now there's three openings out of only seven governors. Right. This could be a very contentious Federal Reserve Board. You got to ask the question: right. Where are we actually at risk? I mean, it's true that if you politicize the Fed in an extreme way and debase the currency, which would be one way out of the federal debt, right? It would be catastrophic. This is how Nazi Germany happened. Um, but I don't see that as a real threat right now. It does seem just by the behavior seems much more moderate and considered in that part of the government. There are other parts of the government where I'm terrified. Well, Michael Lewis is uh, the author of a brand new article called Made in the USDA. You can find it in your handy dandy copy of Vanity Fair. He's also the author of a million books, the most recent of which is The Undoing Project, which is a fabulous book about the the beginnings of behavioral finance, about uh, Tversky and Kahneman and how they built it up. It has been such a great pleasure. This is the first time I've met you in person when I'm not tackling you in the green room. So I I do appreciate you coming in today. Thank you for joining us. And we look so forward to your next book, article, anything you do, we're reading. Thanks. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for the listener question of the week. You know, we use this part of the program to follow the interview to hear from you and answer your questions. If you would like to get on the air, either on our longer form show or during the Better Off bonus call of the week, just shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Today, we've got Adam on the line from Los Angeles. Adam, welcome to Better Off. What can I do for you? Uh, Hi, Jill. Thanks for taking my call. First of all, love your show. Oh, thank you. So I have an issue with trying to figure out a backdoor rot, but I have commingled assets with pre-tax and after-tax dollars. Oh, no. Come on. Why are you making this so hard for me and for you? Uh, need to keep it interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, so tell me what you got. I have, uh, so what I have is about $700,000 in IRA accounts, and I have 27000 of that, which is after tax. Okay. And I, talked to, and I talked to CPAs, and it seems that the right steps, and I just want to confirm that these are the right steps, is to open an individual 401k, as my wife has an S-corp, mm-hmm. shift that. Step one mm-hmm. would be to shift the after-tax or the pre-tax dollars into the, into the solo 401k. Okay. Leave the remaining twenty-seven thousand that's after tax in our IRAs, mm-hmm. and then convert it at the end of the year. Yeah, that might be. I think that sounds about right. The thing that's interesting is so the money that's in the you said seven hundred thousand dollars. Can you break that? Is this all in her name or in your name? So, so about four hundred and seventy. Well, four hundred and seventy thousand of that is in my name. And then the remainder is in her name. But if she opens a solo 401k, you can only put her funds into that, right? You can't put both um, of your money into that, unless you are going to be part of her 401k plan? I would be part of it as a spouse. Ah, you got, I see. Hmm, that's interesting. This is going to be quite thorny. Do you have someone who can help you with the 401k? Because obviously a solo 401k has some specific rules. Do you have a, someone who can help you manage this process? 
So I have somebody at Schwab that said that they could uh, they could help open it up and manage the transfers. Okay. But I've talked to two or three CPAs to make sure that these steps are right. The, the brokerage firms are very confused about it. Yeah. They get mixed answers between Schwab and Vanguard. Right. I agree that the brokerage firms really don't want to touch this because they don't want to be seen as giving advice. Okay. So that I understand. Um, you know, I feel like as long as you have someone who knows how to do this and they're willing to kind of help you with the process, that would be good. What does your wife do for a living? Uh, she's an ER physician. Okay. And, and she is a independent contractor right now? Um, she was for a majority of last year and part of this year. They just switched her to W-2 status. Interesting. So, so she's not yeah. going to be continuing to fund it after this year. Correct. That's sort of interesting also because she could have a solo 401k. You could keep it open, but I guess you could then also roll that over into an IRA rollover eventually when all this other stuff is done. Correct. Um, Unless she picks up shifts as an independent contractor. So we might just keep the S-Corp open. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm pretty sure that this is the right way to do it. However, I am going to um, send you the name of somebody I know who does this for a living, who's really smart, and actually works with people to open up defined benefit plans. I just, I really want to make sure that you're... Your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed because this could be a little bit of a nightmare, not immediately, but down the road. So I believe that that is exactly what you need to be doing. But I am concerned that, you know, some some dope at one of these big wirehouses or brokerage firms is going to mess it up. So I want someone to really babysit it for you. Do you use a CPA? You Do you guys use it or do you do your own taxes? Uh, no, we use a CPA. And the, this CPA, your CPA feels comfortable with this process? No, he was he was unclear about it. So I'd reached out to several other CPAs that seem to have some knowledge in this space. Okay. I'm going to send you one more name just for the heck of it. And I want you to talk Great. to this dude because he's really whip smart. He deals with lots of people who are kind of in your wife's situation. So I want to make sure that I just feel like I want one more person that I know because I don't trust anybody. It sounds like you don't either. I don't either. That's no, good. That's All right. So let's do that. I'm going to send you a name of somebody who I think will help you out. And let's see how we can kind of, as I said, babysit this. And And I agree with you. I would keep the S-Corp alive. And if she takes up other shifts and just way to sock away some more money, that's a great idea as well. Sounds like you are um, doing what you need to do, doing your homework. And if I can help you out just by giving you one more resource, let's just double, triple check, Okay. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for calling. And I will uh, I'll have Mark get me your email address and I'll shoot you a note. OK, thanks. Jill. All right. Thanks for calling. Take care. Thanks again to Michael Lewis. Keep an eye out. He's going to keep writing about the current administration and other agencies. I can't wait to see what they are. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. 
Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week. <laughs>